0: Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast... We talk with Charles Freeman III. As the headlines whipsaw Americans back and forth about a possible trade agreement with China, we sit down with a second-generation China watcher who is an expert in trade negotiations. Charles Freeman grew up speaking Chinese, graduated from law school, and served as the assistant United States Trade Representative for China, shortly after China entered the World Trade Organization in December 2001. Just before joining USTR, Freeman worked in the U.S. Senate, which at the time was considering legislation as part of an agreement for China to enter the WTO. Congress was debating whether to grant something called Permanent Normal Trade Relations, or PNTR. Here's Finance Committee Ranking Member Max Baucus, later Ambassador to China himself, at the debate and vote in the Senate in September 2000.
1: Mr. President, I am very pleased that we are about to Complete the debate on PNTR, and, and we're about to have a final vote. I think it's been a good debate. It's been a, um, a time when American people have an opportunity to think, learn more about uh, what PNTR with, with China actually uh, will be. It's, there are good arguments on all sides, but I'm, I'm quite uh, happy, frankly, that now that we're near the end of this long process, uh, that uh, finally. Uh, the United States will grant a permanent normal trade relationship with China.
0: In his discussion with me, Charles Freeman talks about his time at the Office of the United States Trade Representative, both the considerations for bringing cases against China at the WTO, and what worked in bilateral trade negotiations in the early 2000s. But we begin the conversation with Freeman's early exposure to a Chinese professor who went on to become an ideological soulmate of President Xi Jinping and the number five member of the ruling Communist Party Politburo Standing Committee, Wang Huning. Charles Freeman, thanks so much for spending time today. Um, You have a very interesting personal history as second generation China hand. Can you talk a little bit about growing up in China and and, uh, how that influenced your future career?
1: Well, I never actually grew up in China unless you consider Taiwan to be part of China, and I know Many of us do. Many, some of us don't. Um, I, I did grow up in in uh, did spend some time growing up in Taiwan, where my dad was in language school uh, in Taichung, and my dad, of course, was uh, embarking on a career that would be, you know, heavily China focused. He was Nixon's interpreter in seventy two uh, when uh, when Nixon went to Beijing, and uh, so it was you know really from from that period of time where i was you know watched double black and white tv of these images of of you know uh, monotone figures running around in, in beijing and I, I, but it just seemed so uh, fascinating so so much opportunity and that to to you know that to be part of us china Relations in the, in the, and the growth thereof. That really, from the time I was about seven years old, I knew that China was a big part of my future.
0: Well, wow. and your sister too, because your sister was also in the. In my the China sister,
1: Gilder. my sister, yeah, both of us were heavily influenced, and and my brother too. Uh, uh, my younger brother, who who did spend a lot of time, and and actually when he was growing up, he started in Taiwan. He didn't actually speak any English when we moved back to the states. He only spoke um and and some Mandarin. Um, wow. So that was a. Um, so we all kind
0: of got the, got the China bug growing
1: uh, very early on.
0: So then college and then uh, Fudan or law school?
1: Yeah, no, I, t- I took a year off um, in, in college and just uh, went back to Taiwan to work on, on my Mandarin and ended up working for banks and stuff and going to Bushiban to, and uh, learned, uh, learned decent Chinese uh, much better than it is now. And then came back, um, finished up at at, uh, at Tufts, and and actually sped, uh, did a couple of courses here at Georgetown to get my degree. Degree, and um, then I, had, I got a what it was a, then a USIS scholarship to go to Funan and and study whatever I wanted to study, and I studied uh, uh, you know China's post-Mao economic development policy, which at the time was. What year was this? This was eighty six, eighty seven, and actually, um, one of my professors' at the time was Wang Huning, mm, uh, wow. uh, who now is, of course, the um, a fairly ideological um, advisor to to President Xi and uh,
0: on the Popular Senate Committee, sure. Yeah,
1: and we uh, at the time he was we were working on the or he was working on a draft to the foreign investment law. And he came in, would, and I was auditing his class, and I was the only foreigner there, obviously. What, what was his class? Um, Economic. It was, a, it was law issues. and economics, mm-hmm. um, something like that. And you know, he'd come in with a new chapter every, basically, every week, and the students would go through it, and I would, and I remember thinking, you know, as we went through, is all this, you should do this, you should do that, we should do this, we should do that, and I kept waiting for the 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 part that says or else, and this is what this is what will happen if you don't do this. And, um, you know, I went up to the, the I went up to Wong Ning at, at Professor Wong and said, you know, is that coming? And he said, he said, young man, you don't understand. In China, law is uh, uh, it's a it's an abstract guiding principle. And um, that was when I decided to go to law school in the states <laughs> <laughs> to learn some uh, to learn U.S. Some, law, yeah, some real law, <laughs> some real law, something other than abstract. And so,
0: at that time, Don, was that your first trip to the mainland, or had you gone earlier? No, no, no. My long? dad,
1: my dad, and, and mom had gone there in um, in '81, and my dad was DCM, and so I was uh, there and back for for many, many. Uh, a lot of time between 81 and 85.
0: Oh. And just describe for those who haven't seen photos or didn't travel to China then what it was like to kind of go to mainland China, both from Taiwan, but then also compared to yeah, the no, United was, States. It,
1: it was it was very different. And, and I think a lot of people that, um, a lot of younger people like yourself who um, have more recent experience with China, um, you know, they have higher expectations of China than those of us older types, because, you know, I remember you know, those early years in 81, 82, you, you, there was, it was illegal for the La Baixin, the average Chinese people, to have any interaction with, with foreigners. And I remember, you know, there was this period where people would come up to you on the street um, and practice their English with you. And I, I remember, you know, we were staying in an old Beijing hotel right off of Tiananmen Square and, and you know, coming off and, and being accosted by one of these, these people who wanted to practice English. And you know, grudgingly agreeing and sort of saying, "Okay, yes, in the states there are skyscrapers and things like that." And then at the end of it, the guy said, um, "By the way, these the you know those those guys over there, these plain clothes kind of guys with, with with sunglasses, they're not happy that I'm speaking to you, and they're going, they're probably going to give me a hard time." And I remember wa- watching this guy wander over, and these guys following him and strike him and knock him to the ground. Um, oh. And so my uh, perceptions of China today are probably pretty different from a lot of people's because it has changed a lot.
0: So you go to law school to start to learn, learn some real law uh, and then end up on Capitol Hill.
1: After a long period, I, 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 um, I practiced for a couple of years, absolutely. Hate, practiced law for a couple of years, corporate law, hated it. Um, you know, uh, decided I wanted to move my family to Hong Kong. Uh, my family didn't want to move to Hong wife at the time didn't want to move to, to China proper. Uh, she was willing to move to Hong Kong. so I took the first job I could get, which was I ran conferences for the International Herald Tribune um, uh, for a while. We did these big, huge dog and pony shows um, in, in Beijing and actually in capitals all over Asia, which was a great I mean that was you know the, that was the, the really interesting time in, in China's rise.
0: And at that time, the IHT was both New York Times and the Washington Post. Is that right? Was it? Yeah, IHT was
1: was co-owned, and you know, we did these Davos-style conferences all over the region. This was it was great fun and learned a lot. Um, I quit the day the bot dropped in '97 and went to work for the Asia Foundation. And out of doing, uh, you know, their Hong Kong or their their China reform policy. Um, so I actually got to work with with like people like Lin Fu at at, at at Beida and a lot of the guys that were working on the, the doing the pre WTO accession uh, legal reforms, just sort of scrubbing stuff on what needed to change once they joined WTO. So um, I had a really cool kind of um, you know uh, seat at the table for a lot of the stuff that was happening in China. And knew that I, when I, I wanted to, to when uh, there was a, a period in '99 when um, Zhu Rongji came back and um, was trying to cut the final deal on on WTO accession, and there was a mix-up with the Clinton administration. They published, um, they they released the the terms of the deal before Zhu had a chance to come back. To China and and you know get consensus, so basically blew up the deal. Uh, and I, I decided I wanted to come back and work on, on permanent normal trade relations. Oh, so China that's when you p- decided yeah, when, when so that
0: that uh, yeah. visit that G came to the yeah, U S. and you so were in Hong Kong. I,
1: I came back, took the took the first job in the Hill I got, which I was very, which was really terrific. It was for a finance committee member from, uh, Senate Finance Committee member from Alaska. Um, you know I was a Republican, so it was kismet. Um, and that was terrific. That was a lot of fun. Uh,
0: and then I wanted to ask you about, you talked about your work at, uh, on kind of legal issues in WTO preparation on Capitol Hill at that time, 99, 2000, 2001, as the legislation was moving forward to grant China permanent normal trade relations what was the mood like on Capitol Hill towards China, and kind of what did you see your role in, in part of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, um, I don't want to make too much of my role. Um, you know, the Senate actually was a relatively minor player in that exercise. The House uh, really was the, the primary uh, place where that happened, although, um, you know, we did our part. Um, but remember, this was a period when you had this annual Most, Most Favored Nation uh, debate, and you had— uh, you know, members of the business community coming up, but also the human rights advocates, Taiwan folks, um, um, Harry Wu and, and that gang um, coming up our, and the labor people ca- arguing for and against MFN. And it was a very kind of chaotic period, where, but the, the business community always prevailed in that debate. And so the business community was, you know, was, was gearing up for you know, one final big push. We're going to do this one last time. So it, it, there was no question it was going to happen, uh, I don't think. It was just a, a question of, of what needed to be, you know, what we needed to pay what off. Would what would be extracted. What would be know, extracted in the process. Uh-huh. And, um, and you know, I think the, the Clinton folks and Charlene Bershevsky and, and the, the folks that were lobbying for PNTR, um, um, and then when, when you know, uh, they did a, a pretty pretty masterful job of, of working the hill and and managing things and so it was uh, it was it was a pri- privilege just to be just to watch that that process unfold and
0: um, and on Capitol Hill members of Congress were in the Senate where you were what did they think about what was going to happen in China That's or what question. what um, PNTR and then WTO entry would actually mean for US China relations or for I, China
1: I, I think there was there was um, there was some sense that China was moving towards becoming more of a normal country in quotes. Um, And and what does
0: that mean to you or what do you think they meant by it?
1: Um, I think more where there is more pluralism um, and um, uh, greater freedom uh, generally both political and as well as economic. Um, You know I don't don't want to oversell that. You know I think that was in part something that those of us who wanted the deal done for any variety of reasons um, um, used as a kind of political talking point, but I think there was there were some people who genuinely believed that China was going in in, in the direction of of um, uh, something more like Singapore than 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 it's turned out.
0: We'll get to that in in a little bit. So. Um, then PNTR passes. Uh, China enters the WTO in December of 2001, and you join USTR in 2002.
1: Yeah, I, I joined um, Jeff Bader, who was um, who was the ouster for China during the, the final period of of, of passage. Um, um, you know, the, the the Bush administration took over, um, for t- 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 did the final push on PNTR and. Um, uh, Jeff Bader had been the ouster and uh, I, I knew I wanted to do something in the Bush administration um, either in, in Commerce or USTR and, and Jeff and I spoke. I'd known Jeff since I was 16 when he was a political counselor at uh, at the, the embassy working under my dad um, and you know he and I talked and and he said oh well, you should take over for me I'm leaving um, and I was Extremely flattered and didn't know you could actually do that (laughs) But um, but uh, they actually downgraded the position to a douster uh, Because uh, Bob Zelik wanted to signal the Chinese that uh, that um, China was no longer that important uh, that you know China and Japan and Korea were kind of on the same could all be managed by one one ouster so uh, I went to work for Wendy Cutler, who, of course, uh, went on to to negotiate TPP and uh, was, has been a great mentor to me. Um,
0: and the Korea Free Trade Agreement. And, as and well the Korea Free
1: Trade Agreement. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Um, <coughs> I guess one of the things that Wendy mentioned when we spoke with her was at the beginning of the Bush administration during uh, Bob Zelik's time at USTR, mm-hmm. there was an internal discussion of when would be the good time to bring cases against China the yeah. WTO. Of kind of. You have to have, for all countries that are joining the WTO, there's a normal implementation process and numbers of laws have to be adjusted and and certain new policies have to be put forth. And so you have to allow that to happen. And there was a schedule of tariff reductions and other changes to Chinese regulations. And so what was the balance between moving ahead with the legal case at the WTO and kind of letting that happen? What was your view on the ground, kind of on the inside? How did you see those things?
1: Well, I mean, it, I mean, we kept getting pushed by folks on the Hill to, to bring cases, bring cases, bring cases. And the reality was that there weren't, there wasn't this roster of cases to be brought. Um, frankly, we, at that time, you know, Mofcom, the Ministry of Commerce, still had a fair amount of juice and was still in the m- mindset that, you know, we want to get this WTO thing right. So we'd bring bring issues that we saw with their implement with WTO implementation, and you know nine times out of ten it would get
0: solved. And so can you just walk through, since you were on the kind of USTR end, how that would happen? A company would come to you or an industry association and say, "Hey, we have this regulatory issue yeah. that seems to be WTO inconsistent." Charles, can you help us?
1: Um, yeah, I mean there were there were things. I mean, for example, the, uh, one of the things that, that USTR negotiated um, with the Chinese was. The right of distribution that companies could distribute through China, throughout China, and um, it, that was supposed to happen on I think day one, um, and uh, companies still couldn't did not have that that ability, uh, including some some of our bigger uh, agricultural commodity uh, companies, and and they came to me and said you know will you will, can you help us with this and. I went to the Chinese, and they said, "Sure, give us an example a company that that wants to get this done." And so, at that time, actually, one of them stepped up and said, "Okay, we want to actually go through the process." A U.S.
0: company was willing to be the, the
1: willing to be the guinea pig, mm-hmm. and and so things like that. I mean, there was a very um, uh, it was a time when when there was a lot of of it was not uh, not it was not uncontentious, but. I think the relationship between um, the U.S. government and 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 MoFcom in particular, but also AQSIQ and some of the other agencies, it was it was pretty um, it, you know it was it was cooperative, very cooperative um, for the most part. Not always, um, you know. We had our shouting matches. Um, I lost my temper more than a few times. At, uh, but that was mostly at at, at um, uh, the uh, the planning. Planning associations, uh,
0: and so I, I wanted to ask you about different kind of mechanisms. NDRC, NDRC, yeah, NDRC, yeah, yeah. The, the former Planning Commission. Um, so you guys would have a problem, you'd go to MOFCOM or NDRC. There also were kind of other structures in addition to uh, legal routes, the WTO the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade yeah. as a way to do that. Can you just talk through, in your mind, how you use different kind of interactions and touch points with your Chinese counterparts to push these sorts of things?
1: Well, I mean, we realized very early on that MoFCom's juice, um, its political capital was eroding very quickly, and um, other agencies by and large stopped listening to them about six months after WTO accession so wow that's th- soon yeah I mean and and you had you know I remember going in and, and talking to um, uh, one agency um, and saying you know this pr- you've you agreed to the WTO to do this Mofcom wasn't in the room you've agreed to the WTO to do this you need to change this to comply with your WTO commitments and they said well of course you'd say that you you're a, you're a trade guy I'm like well no this is a national legal commitment. Um, and they would say, yeah, well, okay, yeah, we, you know, thanks, thanks for your time. So one of the things that we, we wanted to do was we realized that um, there was no interagency process within China to manage some of these challenges. So we wanted to create an interagency process. So that's what we did by elevating the JCCT at the time to um, a vice premier and a two-cabinet-level um, U.S. official um, uh, uh, structure. And you know, first couple times it was pretty. It was pretty. uh, It worked pretty well.
0: One of the rights that other WTO members had under China's accession protocol was a safeguard Mm. measure. Um, I seem to recall that there were a couple of not many, but there were a couple of industries in the U.S. that had applied for that kind of safeguard provisions. Could you talk a little about what that is and? Sure. I, I mean, the discussion was inside the administration.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a little controversial. Uh, it was very controversial with the Chinese. It was one of those things that um, that uh, the Chinese negotiator. This is. We, we, it was called Section Four Twenty One here in the states. It was essentially that, you know, if imports from China spiked to the point that they were harming the U.S. U.S. economic interests, then the the, the United States could unilaterally put on. Uh, safeguard measures to uh, to limit the imports of that of those products,
0: and the safeguard measures would be tariffs or quotas. What would the um, safeguards usually be? Yeah,
1: I, I I think it was open ended, mm-hmm. um, but I I can't. You know, it's been a few years. Um, but uh, but but for example, we you know companies would would come to us and say, you know, we are suffering from this, that, or the other thing. One of the things that we, we kind of—I mean, honestly—we made a bit of a political decision early on that we would only only do this as a as a as a last gasp, and and um, if it if we really saw a rather dramatic economic harm, um, in part because we knew this was like a, a bit of a third rail for the Chinese side, and the Chinese side would say to us, you know, put a two hundred one, put uh, you know, put a broad safeguard in process don't single us out, don't discriminate against China, When we'll, we'll play ball.
0: Um, because under the 421, it was China-specific, China China specific. and it was specifically allowed under their accession protocol, and so what they wanted to avoid was being called out as being a, the yeah, event, yeah. the only offending country.
1: Exactly. And I, I have to say, the, the cases that we got, we, we got one for, um, the, the first one we got under 421 was something called, for, uh, for uh, a, a product called a pedestal actuator, which went into, which was something that raised and lowered um, seats in scooters used by disabled people. Very tiny market, one producer in the United States. Um, it was really hard to see what the economic harm, the, the massive economic harm was. And we got a couple others that were there, where it was pretty clear that on balance, um, you know, there was greater economic benefit to the, to the US than harm. So um, that, w- that that process wasn't used until ob- the Obama years and when the tires, uh, the tire uh, uh, quotas were put in place. Wow.
0: Um, you had mentioned and I stopped you talking about the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade and Wu Yi, who was the Vice Premier on the Chinese side. Uh, and uh, I wanted to ask your impressions of Working with Wu I think within MOFCOM, there are still many who respect her very much. I yeah. feel like she's really did a quite an incredible job of hurting their side. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, I'd appreciate your views on her, and then I'll ask you about a couple of other MOFCOM folks.
1: Yeah, she, I mean, sh- I don't think, I, I would be surprised if the WTO accession could have gotten done uh, without her. Um, she didn't take any crud. Um, she was very forceful, and and worked with this system I, I don't think a lot of uh, her her male contemporaries in China really had a great deal of love for her but um, she busted heads in ways that you know people just you know they said you know they went along with it um, and I, I you know I I think she's resented for it but um, certainly the her her uh, you know her leadership really helped uh, raise MOFCOM's profile and its and its ability to get things done in that system in
0: ways that certainly haven't been seen since. Um, I want to ask you about what you thought at that time what kind of worked and what didn't work in dealing with Chinese counterparts. Was it um, getting ready for a meeting with the vice premier that scared the Chinese side into taking U.S. concerns seriously? Was it in preparation for a higher level meeting, like a presidential visit? Was it they were afraid of having to face Charles Freeman showing up (laughs) from Washington? No, they were never afraid of that. Um, What what do you think, kind of, what what worked well and what didn't in that kind of early WTO accession process?
1: You know, I I think there, um, I I think we actually played it pretty well um, at the time. You know, there's a there is this a false sense I think that uh, Chinese have you know are, are strategic planners to the nth degree and they see the end game 10 20 uh, years down the road. Um, and my experience has been they're they're much more incremental in their approach to things and they're much more likely to say, let's get to this this place, see where we are, and then reassess and take the next step. So one of the things that that we really tried to do at the time is say, okay, what's really, what is the one thing that we really want next? Um, what thing ha- will have both the the most um, economic and political um, um, uh, benefit? Uh, what will, what will have the most impact? And let's go for that. And so you know, rather than kind of throwing. Thirty things on the table, and say, you know, here's all the things we want. We threw thirty things on the table and pointed, "This is what we really want." Um, and our experience was, we could get one thing we really wanted, and probably two things that um, we're happy to get. And so it was really steering the steering the Chinese in the direction of of what we really, what would really be useful. Um, and I, you know, I think at the time we really wanted to. We rec- especially since we recognized that MoFCOM's political capital was dissipating rapidly, we wanted to empower them as much as possible. To um, um, so we we wanted to arm them with what what would make them look good as well as us.
0: So by prioritizing, you were able to focus the Chinese side efforts to get the couple one or two things that would really help the U.S. and Without that, their internal process wasn't one that would come up with priorities or come up with policy solutions. Exactly. Um, I wanted to read to you your, a little bit of your testimony from oh dear uh, 2003 and get you to comment on it. This is a Senate Foreign Relations Committee testimony. <clears throat> uh, so this would have been about a year in. This was probably written by Terry McCartan. Uh, and I'm sure, I, I, I'd be very curious on your, on your take on it now. As a general matter, your testimony Starts. China took positive steps to implement many of its specific WTO commitments during the past year. It made required tariff reductions to the benefit of many U.S. industries. And then at the end, you say the administration is committed to seeking improvement in China's efforts in this area. Apart from the systemic concern, three other areas generated significant problems and warranted continued U.S. scrutiny: agricultural, intellectual property rights, and services. Hey, and and you make that comment because. Continues to be an issue. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, you know, it. it I mean, agriculture is always politically difficult in any with any in any trade area. Um, uh, services, the Chinese really undervalued, um, you know, the, the 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 commitments they had made on services um, and and intellectual property. I mean, you know, we. This was at a time where you'd go into. You'd have conversations with Chinese officials, and they'd say things like, "Why are you complaining about intellectual property rights? We, you were able to use gunpowder for years and years, and why shouldn't we now use Microsoft Windows uh, for free?" And so it was. It, it, it took some it took some doing, and I'm I'm not sure we're there yet. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean the 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 thing about intellectual property is it was you know, very from from. From the beginning of the reform and opening up period, um, you know, using foreign IP, um, however acquired, uh, was part of the modernization plan. So um, our idea was that uh, they'd pay for it. Um, and that that proved to be more difficult than we we had hoped. Um, but it's you know it's it's gone for a, a period where it was it was just you know stolen. To now it's uh, just it's they're, they're there's just the the active efforts to to mine for IP in, in, in the States is really a bit appalling.
0: I want to ask you if you have kind of where Chinese today, but before uh, doing that, you, when you left uh, USTR, you went to CSIS.
1: After a couple of years. I consulted for a couple of years and then went to CSIS. Yeah.
0: And one of the things that I just wanted to ask about your experience on was I, I seem to recall one of the working groups or bilateral track 2 Track 1.5 efforts you worked on was on cybersecurity, yeah, and that was kind of early on when was people were focused on it. Jim thing at
1: CSIS, yeah, um, uh, they that was um, with uh, with Kicker, which is you know the the, the security agency's think tank. Um, they they were willing to talk about it, so we 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 did some some interesting conver- had some interesting conversations.
0: And what do you think? brought the Chinese to the table on that issue or brought Kicker to the table to talk about it?
1: It wasn't, well, I mean, Kicker brought in, actually, they brought in folks from the security agencies and others. Um, I, I, I think in part because they had their own concerns about U.S. efforts um, on the cyber side. I mean, obviously, um, you know, we're pretty good at that stuff.
0: Um, and which years are we talking about here? This would have been the mid-2000s. 2006,
1: 2007, I think it started, mm. maybe. Um, no, 2008, yeah. Um, and I think they still, they still, ha- although those conversations have been um, told, uh, they, they still go on in theory. Um, no, I mean, I, th- I think that there was, there was some desire um, to kind of learn more from our side uh, there was also a desire um, to work with the U.S. on on um, on criminal stuff um, because uh, they they did face some challenges from from um, cyber crime mm-hmm. themselves. So um, I think the the FBI really wanted to have a much more collaborative relationship. Um, on cyber issues with uh, their Chinese counterparts, which were frustrated very quickly, but but um, the, some of the, the conversations that we had at, at CSAS enabled some, some of the, some of the that that discussion to take place.
0: So the Chinese side, you think, did have some questions on just evidence collection and how you would prosecute a crime or how you would even detect? Uh, I
1: think it was yeah no it was yeah how do you how how do you Track down and locate, and, and, uh, and sort of what are the forensics on mm-hmm. on, on cybercrime? Uh, so that that, but it was it was very interesting, and there was a lot of discussion on you know can we get to a, a common view of norms of behavior and that kind of thing? And um, the answer is no. <laughs> but it was it, it was a very you know it was a it was a a, a good conversation, um, marred marred only by the fact that the Chinese insisted that they didn't engage in Cyber activity with respect to the United States.
0: Um, so, in looking at China's WTO entry and you know, on cyber, where do you see China now? Um, you had mm. alluded to what Zhu Rongji and, and Lin Yifu and others were kind of looking towards in terms of bringing the Chinese system away from its past. Where do you see the current Chinese administration and the trend lines?
1: Well, it's it's. Just without getting too um, philosophical, I mean, the the World Trade Organization was created out of a series of discussions that uh, where there's a a set of fundamental assumptions. And the primary assumption is that what we want in a global uh, rules-based trading architecture is to increasingly eliminate the ability of governments to interfere in the activities of private commercial uh, actors. And um, at the time, if you go back and are wonky enough to read the uh, accession protocol and the working party report to the accession protocol, um, there is all this conversation where, you know, someone asks, Someone, I mean, the U.S. asks the Chinese representative, "We're worried about," or says, "We're worried about subsidies. We're worried about state-owned enterprises. We're worried about um, industrial policies." And the Chinese side said, "Don't worry. We're going to get rid of all that stuff." And so there really was, and I don't, I, don't, I, 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 I don't think that um, that they were making it up. I think they really did anticipate that they were moving. Toward a much more open and free market approach at least from the, 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 the disciples of Zhu Rongji um, And of course that's not where we are and So if you were to ask me um, is China Abiding by that or do they abide by that? fundamental assumption behind the creation of of WTO I'd say categorically no the model now, such as it is, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure that the China model that everybody touts these days is the model that gave China such economic success. In fact, I would say probably not. Um, but the China model is not compatible with that fundamental uh, assumption behind WTO. So I think we are in a very, very different place than we started out back in when when, when the negotiators on both sides or on all sides. We're working towards towards getting China into the WTO.
0: Could you just talk a little bit about how the WTO mechanism works in Geneva? And you you had mentioned the um, questions put to the Chinese representatives yeah. in Geneva. How does that work? And wha- well, I mean, you're you're all you're all, sit- you're all sitting
1: around. I mean, it's um, it's uh, it m- would terribly frustrate um, uh, advocates of, uh, of unilateralism um, uh, here in the states these days. But it 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 you, you, it's. You sit around and you, you 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 put your you put your flag up and you you raise a question and the Chinese respond or don't, and you know you can ask 72 questions, and the Chinese or anybody else can respond to as many or as few of those questions as they want. It's it's not a it's a it's a it's a frustrating exercise for those of you who are trying just trying to get something done. Um, so. Um, we had there were lots of, of WTO processes that were baked into the accession protocol that you know that we were supposed to to, to check um, and um, check on China's progress of implementation and all that stuff and those didn't work particularly well at all for a variety of reasons. So um, I think China was uh, very quickly found that the 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 WTO process was gameable pretty easily. Um, so the the WTO as, you know, you know abiding by WTO commitments, uh, the letter of WTO commitments um, as well as the spirit was something that, you know, was, yeah, you could do it a little bit. You could do it all, you know, here and there. It's It was not, the WTO is not a uh, a particularly effective organization for policing um, uh, the kind of behavior that, that I think many of us, are concerned about these days in China.
0: I think one of the problems is often around transparency and mm. regulatory transparency, and how companies don't know exactly which rules are in place when or yeah. normative documents that come out that yeah. are not published in any <coughs> public place, and uh, then trying to use the Geneva process to get that out often fails.
1: Well, notification is the big thing, right? I mean, uh, you're supposed to you're supposed to notify um, all your your rules and your your laws and. One of the things that the Chinese told us very early is we we have all these these laws these rules we don't know which are in effect there many of them are contradictory uh, it's very difficult for us to notify all this stuff so they're they're they you know um, they say you know we're we're trying to notify but it's I I I I feel their pain I understand why it's been so difficult doesn't excuse it but um, and you know again when when you're When your rules and your your laws are are abstract guiding principles, um, let's be honest, their utility in terms of um, what they actually mean is is less than might be appreciated here in the States.
0: So you've had 30 plus years at an official level dealing with China, longer with your own personal history. At a big level. What lessons have you learned on what works and what doesn't in dealing with kind of Chinese counterparts? And I would just ask about what changed and what hasn't changed in your, your experience. Um,
1: you know, what's changed is I think the the there really was a core cadre of Chinese officials that believe in, um, you know, the utility of, of the rules based architecture to drive Chinese reform and to help China move up the up the value chain, uh, and I think those those uh, those people have been either uh, mustered out or just lost uh, lost their way. Um, so so I, I I really you know I th- there there I'm we always say and I always say there's still a there's still a group there are still Chinese that believe. Profoundly in the principles of, of of market openness and reform and transparency, um, you know, uh, they aren't exactly they aren't exactly front and center. They're not driving the boat at this They're moment. They're not driving the boat. Yeah. Um, so that that's I mean maybe they'll come back, and I certainly hope they do. Um, and I, I think you know I don't wish ill on the Chinese economy, but it's hard to see how uh, with the direction it's going in now that there isn't some sort of um, Significant bump in the road, um, and maybe that will cause that will bring back more of a sense of okay, let's 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 return to, to first principles here. Um, what what's af- what's always been effective with the Chinese is is um, um, is multilateral um, uh, pressure as opposed to unilateral or bilateral pressure. Um, so. Uh, I, I I do worry for example with the, the tariffs the, the unilateral tariffs that the president is placing these days on China that it, it's it's missing out on a uh, on um, the multilateral strategy which I think would be more effective um, and frankly give um, less comfort to Xi Jinping that this is a you know, this is all an American plot um,
0: do you think Chinese officials still care about what happens in the rest of the world and how the rest of the world sees China?
1: I think yeah, I think China does does care about its place in the world, uh, very much so. Um, I, you know, I, I, it does not want to be viewed as a bully. And you know, it's one thing for the U.S. to say, "Okay, you're a bully," and they say, "Well, no, you're the bully," and you can get into a name calling thing. If the entire world says, "You know, hey, we're we're not we're not happy with what you're doing," I think. I think there's there's more likelihood that China stands up. Um, so I, I do think multilateralism is, is important. Um, I think incrementalism is important as opposed to kind of okay change your entire system. Uh, I think the the answer to that is no. Um, so I, I worry again that that current pressures on China lose sight of that. And I understand why, you know, why one gets frustrated with. The lack of progress on certain parts of of U.S. concerns with respect to Chinese economic policy, Um, but you know that's really that's the game. It is about getting that next thing done, still.
0: And part of that, on your experience, was the interagency process important in terms of teeing up the next and next thing?
1: Um, um, it it was important to get agreement from. I mean, I, I have to say, at the time, USTR was was pretty strong in terms of of pushing things, and um, you know, we we had our um, you know, Commerce was act- was obviously very effective and and helpful in the in the in the JCCt process. Um, you know, uh, I'm not sure that uh, my personal friendships with <laughs> members of the Commerce team survived the the experience, but. Um, know it was I think that, that that was a that was a good partnership um, and you know um, the, the agriculture folks were very you know getting on board with, with them was 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 very important so yeah no making sure that we were all on the same page was was critical uh, and that was that was the most fun that I had in my government experience was was getting the interagency on the same page
0: Charles, thanks so much. Um, A genuine honor. uh, Really wonderful to have your experience, and uh, appreciate you taking time. Pleasure, James. Charles Freeman III, speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.